0: It's refreshing to meet an honest person. There was this uh, fellow that called into work one day and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to come in today. I was driving into work. I took a wrong turn, and I just decided to keep going the wrong direction. You know, that's not oftentimes what, what happens. Oftentimes, whenever we make a mistake, we try to explain it in such a way that it makes ourselves look better uh, and, and not worse. Uh, That issue is addressed in our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 14, where Paul will say that we are to stand firm having put on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now there are some uh, who wonder, what does he mean by truth? Truth has such a broad definition, and there are so many options for translating it in the New Testament that we want to make sure that we get it right. There are some that would say, well, truth in this text is the truth of the gospel. But he actually addresses that in verse 15. And so this is to be distinguished from verse 15, where you shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, Some would say, well, it's God's word. But he addresses that in verse number 17. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So however we understand the word truth in verse number 14, we've got to distinguish it from the gospel and from the Bible. Uh, There is another approach to truth that is entirely legitimate, and and it is related to gospel and and to Bible. We'll explain later in the coming weeks as we uh, finish a look at this passage. But there is a sense of truth in which we are very honest and have integrity and no guile and that we're transparent uh, about ourselves. In other words, we attempt to be as true as the gospel and the Bible. In other words, what we say about ourselves and about others, we want it to be as inerrant as the Bible and as God himself. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 14, that if we do that, we will have wonderful protection from the interference and the oppression and the attack of demons. Let's begin, really, in verse number 10, and we'll read into verse number 14. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand. withstand in the evil day, and having, having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, the fourth statement there, the fourth time he said stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Paul envisioned the truth as being something like the belt around the waist of a Roman soldier, which you see identified over here. By the way, let me say he's carrying a sword. Don't mess with him, okay? Uh, don't don't touch him. He may pull that thing out. Uh, it's very valuable. A very valuable. Um, uh, a very valuable Uh, 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 item there, and we want to be very careful with it. But there is a belt there that holds the sword, and oftentimes holds clothing and other materials together, and weapons as well of the Roman soldier. And Paul envisioned truth as being this way. And it's not necessarily the objective truth of the Bible. That's going to come up in verse 17. It's not necessarily the saving truth of Jesus Christ. That will arise in verse 15. This happens to be personal truth truth, where we seek to be as true ourselves as the Bible is. We seek to have the kind of integrity, the kind of honesty, the kind of transparency that God himself has and displays in his word. So this morning, I want to speak on the subject of when the devil goes down to Georgia, he assaults our honesty. And the way to win, one way to win, is to make sure that you buttress and guard your honesty, your integrity, your truthfulness in life. So we can win in spiritual warfare if we get honest about significant matters in our lives. Well, what matters are those? Well, it's interesting. In the book of Ephesians, the word truth is used frequently in just these six short chapters of the book of Ephesians. And I want you to turn to the first one in chapter 1. Beginning in verse 13, we've got to get ruthlessly honest about our salvation. And we'll look at chapter 1 and then chapter 4. It says here in chapter 1, verse 13, In Christ you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, we are saved by embracing the truth of the gospel. But Paul does more than that in leaving it objective. He makes it very specific and personal in chapter 4 in verse number 24. Look here. Chapter 4, verse 24. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, that person is doing something akin to putting on a whole new person. A whole new person. Now, When I came to the Lord, God changed my life. I came from a secular background, just really unaware of God or anything. My internal attitudes were really miserable and awful in so many ways. And I came to Christ, and God changed me uh, because I came to Christ. And that time in my life, when I came to Christ, my family refers to as the day when David was reborn. I had the same skin, the same appearance, but I was a new and different man, and everyone that comes to Christ is made new as well. It's as if they've put on a whole different person when they come to Jesus Christ. So, let's get honest about something by looking at verse number 24 of chapter 4. Look what he says. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Whenever we come to Jesus Christ, God recreates us into new people. And when I read the word creation in the New Testament, I, I, I recall, of course, like you do, Genesis chapter 1, where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth, have you ever noticed in verse 2? The earth existed and the heavens, the universe existed, but it was formless and void. So God first created the heavens and the earth formless and void and then beginning in verse number three he starts to decorate and populate the earth he said let there be light and there was light and then he commands the creation of the of the plants and then he commands the creation of the animals and the beasts, and finally men and women So you have a world that already exists, and it's formless and void, and then God begins to recreate, and God begins to populate it in that time. He does the exact same thing in the life of anyone that comes to Jesus Christ. We are formless and void without Him, just like the heaven and the earth were. And then God comes, and He begins in Christ to recreate us and to populate us with these things in verse number 24. And that's what Paul is saying. Again, let's read verse number 24 again. That you put on the new man which was created according to God. In other words, this newness looks like God. Well, what does that mean? It means we become people that have and are populated and recreated with true righteousness and holiness. Look, let's get honest. Demons would love for every church person and every religious person to take a look at their attendance and their giving and their own works for assurance of salvation that they really know Christ. And not ever ask the question, has God ever created anything in my life since I came to Jesus? In other words, the salvation experience and the Christian experience in life is not merely me doing what I'm supposed to do. It is more God Himself prompting me and creating something in me. Salvation is the work of God. And the question I've got to ask myself is this. Is there anything in my life that I claim is Christian that is not the product of good raising and a good education and a good environment and a good temperament? You know, there are just some people that are just nice, whether they're believers or not. There are some people that because of their upbringing and their family and their parents and and because of um, their education have really been shaped into some very impressive people and it doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not. There are atheists that are virtuous people and some that are better than some Christians you and I know. So the question I've got to ask is, if I didn't have a faith in Jesus Christ, would I be any different or any less than I am today? Is there anything in my life that is there that God himself has created? Or is everything in my life there because of good raising, a good education, a good environment, or a good temperament? You see, You What Satan would like for you to do is have assurance of your salvation, by placing it in the kind of works that any old human can do if they've got enough discipline. You see. Instead, we should place our hope in salvation in the work of God, beginning at the cross, in the resurrection, and then the work of the Holy Spirit creating something new in us. Has He ever created anything in me, or am I just like everyone else, that's disciplined, raised well, educated, with a good temperament? That's the first thing. We need to get ruthlessly honest about our salvation. But there's a second thing, and that is our hope. Now, chapter 4, verse 21. Go back up a little bit, and uh, Paul will address this. He says in verse 21, If indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, the context here is not doctrinal, but very practical. He said in verses 17 through 19, Don't be like the unbelieving Gentiles, In verse 19, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. So he's talking about moral and practical issues in life. And then he goes on to say, you've not so learned Christ that you can know Christ and be lewd. Know Christ and work all uncleanness. Know Christ and be greedy. The the text will say in chapter 5, those are excluded from the kingdom of God. So you've not learned Christ in a way that allows for continued habitual lewdness, continued uncleanness, continued greediness. You've not learned Christ that way. Verse 21, If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. A lot of Christians are causing themselves a lot of anxiety and vulnerability to demons by looking to everyone else before they look to Jesus about moral and practical issues i mean they will look to a college or a university course they'll look to a self-help book They, they will look to their friends they'll look even to celebrities before they will look to god on issues of morality and practical issues of life in other words they're taking the world far too seriously and jesus not seriously enough whenever we do that we make ourselves terribly vulnerable to demons why Because the world will always minimize sin and exaggerate its own virtue. Every time it will do so. And you know why, of course. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because they don't have a Redeemer who can clear their conscience, and so they've got to tap it down. Constantly, they've got to keep something in their ears to listen to something, so they don't think. Because if they think, they will not like what they say, not 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 like the thoughts that come across their mind. They'll discover emptiness in their souls, and so you can understand why they would tap down and minimize sinfulness and offenses to God. That, that that's precisely why. Well, at least one of many reasons. Why? And so whenever we look to the world, we've got to be very, very careful because the world without a Redeemer, without a Savior, will minimize sin and make it just sort of an ordinary, natural, normal plaything instead of magnifying it as a great, horrible offense to God, which is actually good news because God takes it personally, and He's personally involved in all of that. Now, when that happens, here's what happens. When the Christian does that and follows the world in minimizing the heinousness of sin, that person quenches the power of the Holy Spirit. That person makes it to where a barrier develops between them and God, and they're more and more distant from Him. And so they know Him less, and they grieve more, and they become more and more miserable. Listen, you've got to understand, the most miserable person in the world is not the lost non-Christian. It's the Christian who is not in fellowship with God. That's the most miserable person in the world. And the devil and demons absolutely uh, frustrate and aggravate and oppress such persons. So they minimize sin. And, and so I've got to say to you, if, if you're looking to the world or you've got some other troubles that this passage implies, I, I, I need to say to you, you're probably... You know, if your family gets to the point where they complain that you're critical and yelling at them, you're probably doing it more than you realize. If you're struggling with pornography, you're probably struggling more than you realize. If you're struggling with alcohol, you're probably struggling more than you're willing to admit. If you're struggling with these things, they're probably great. You've minimized them, and demons are taking advantage of you in terrible ways. You need to let yourself get honest before God. The problems are actually as bad as everyone is telling you they are. And you've got to get a hold of yourself and honest and transparent before God and seek Him and implement His ways of overcoming these issues. Now, there's no easy answer here. The way to defeat demons in life is look to Jesus first and always and embrace His ways of thinking about moral and practical issues. Otherwise, you're vulnerable to demons. So let's get honest about salvation and our hope. We hope to find truth in Jesus. Then let's get honest about our words. Chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we're members of one another. There's that word truth again. I've got to tell you, and despite the bad news I just delivered, there's more coming. And that is, it's a whole lot easier to lie than what we realize. There are a number of ways to do that, and demons desire that we lie, and that we lie frequently. Well, number one, what is a lie? Well, a lie is something we say or live, and we intend to deceive others. So if you happen to share something and you make a mistake in some facts and you didn't mean to, that doesn't mean you've lied necessarily. It, a lie means you say or do something with the intention of deceiving other people and leading them, misleading them about the truth. And and so lying is one way to lie, but there's another way, and that is gossip. Gossip means you end up sharing information about someone else to someone, and it's none of their business. It might be entirely true, but it's none of their business. And the reason that's a lie is that you're implying it's your business and you should know. That in itself is a lie. And and, and not only that, but you may possibly have a motive to impress people that you're an insider and that you know enough information to be sharing these things. That's a lie too. Frankly, most gossip we have no business knowing about. And then there's slander. That is unproven negative information. And quite frankly, folks, we do this a lot with politicians. We say ugly things about President Obama. Uh, We say ugly things about President Trump, politicians and others, and it's slander. In fact, look at verse number 27. Nor give place or a holding spot to the devil. The word there, devil, is the same word translated in other places in the New Testament, slander. Slander. Slander and the devil are uh, twins, in many ways. And I think what is happening in our world today is that, the, is that the, the, uh, the devil and all the kingdom of hell with all the demons is actually preparing our world, especially our nation, for the coming of the Antichrist. I mean, America cannot get any satisfaction over anything political. When, in fact, did you know the Congress of the United States and the State House uh, in Atlanta here in Georgia of the legislation they pass is approved by 90% of the legislators. You just never hear about it. What you hear about is a 10% disagreement. And what's happening is that the devil and demons are preparing the way for the Antichrist. They want to have the people so dissatisfied with government that they call for a revolution, destabilize society, and that's when the Antichrist steps into place. And that's exactly what's happening because slander, some of it coming from Christians and Facebook and social media posts. So lying, gossip, slander, spinning is another way to lie as well. That means we distort something in our favor. Uh, And and politicians sometimes are known for this. Uh, Not all of them, but but some are. Uh, One of the spins is there is a consensus behind such and such notions. This is sometimes used to argue for a scientific point. When in fact, ladies and gentlemen, one day there was a consensus that the sun rotated around the earth. That used to be a consensus. There used to be a consensus that the earth is flat. Using consensus is a way to manipulate people into submission and surrender. Now, it's got to be, it's got to be, ladies and gentlemen, accounted for. The consensus may very well be right, but proper research has got to be done. But if the debate is ended over consensus, then we should never, ever do any kind of research on any other subject ever, ever again. The consensus has settled it. And that's just not the case. The next generation of scientists, the next generation of social demographers and others and researchers will most likely overthrow what the previous generation thought. I mean, my goodness, how, how can we keep doing this? A generation ago, salt was bad. I read a medical report this past week. It's now good. A generation ago, caffeine was, good, uh, was bad. Today, it's good. I mean, what in the world is going... People are spinning things in order to achieve favor and look better and impressive and that happens not only in politics and sciences it happens in marriages as well most often how we end up distorting an annoying behavior with a spouse and exaggerating the virtue of our own that's another way to lie I know some spouses, in fact, they find what annoys their spouse so they can do it over and over and over again. That's oftentimes the way it looks. Spinning is another way to lie. Now, why in the world would demons make you vulnerable to uh, lying words? Because if you become known as someone who communicates things that are not true, no one will ever believe you again, or they'll have a hiccup or question mark in mind anytime you speak especially when you speak about Jesus, and demons will make sure that's the case. We've got to get serious about our words. We've got to get serious about maturity. Chapter 5, verse number 9, explains what maturity is. And it's interesting what the Bible teaches is maturity and other things it never comments on. It says here, For the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. What it doesn't say is that the fruit of the Spirit is Bible study, church attendance and prayer now are those things important oh yeah but let me ask you something if someone attends church and studies the bible and prays does that guarantee maturity no what we've got to do is that we've got to be careful to distinguish between the means and the measure the means of spiritual growth are some of those things i just mentioned The spiritual disciplines, Bible study and prayer and church attendance and some other things. Those are the means. But even if we have perfected those, those things are not the measure of whether or not we're mature. The measure happens to be verse number 9. Is the Holy Spirit free to produce goodness, righteousness, and truth in me? Maturity then is achieved by the spiritual disciplines, but we have never arrived at it until... We have godly character produced by the Holy Spirit. And so demons, let's get honest, demons would love to confuse human effort for divine effort as long as we congratulate ourselves on mastering spiritual disciplines and don't worry very much about our heart and our character. So the way to defeat demons is to do what's implied here in verse 9 with the fruit of the Spirit, and that is to surrender often, frequently, and always to the Holy Spirit, but there's a four, there's a fifth thing that we've got to get very honest about, and that happens to be this: our warfare. Now we read real clearly that clearly that we are in a spiritual warfare. Therefore, we have verse number fourteen: Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. We have to discern demonic attack and manipulation and mischief in our lives. Some of the spiritual warfare authors I'm reading lately say that they have discovered the number one satanic means, demonic means, of making Christians miserable and defeated is this one thing. Relentless mental accusation. Constant mental accusation in other words things going through your mind you don't know where they came from and it probably happens to you oftentimes in prayer do you ever get a bad feeling and find it difficult to pray and have the most awful things in the world go through your mind when you pray well do you where do you think that comes from well you know where it comes from it comes from a demon most likely in order to interrupt your prayers because there is no defense in hell for the armor of God in prayer, none whatsoever. Frequent, relentless mental accusation is a primary way demons defeat believers and make them miserable, and I fear that most do not realize it when it is going on. In fact, here's what demons will do. Demons will use your faith in Christ and your walk with God against you every time, especially if you don't understand grace. Let let me explain to you how this will happen. Listen to me carefully. Now, I'm going to read to you a few things here from Carl Payne in his book, Spiritual Warfare. And eventually, some of the language is going to get a little upsetting. But these are things that demons put in the minds that mentally accuse god's people and make them miserable and, and there, this really uh, follows two lines of uh attack one is accusation and the other is seduction listen to the accusations you are ugly no one likes you your prayers bounce off the ceiling so why do you bother praying you've committed the unforgivable unpardonable sin or read your bible later you're too sleepy to read right now. And why do you bother reading the Bible? You never get anything out of it anyway, because you're not a true Christian. The Bible's not true. You're stupid. You're a hypocrite. And then if you're praying, when you finish, you didn't begin your prayer with our Father. And you didn't end it within Jesus' name. Pray again with more sincerity so God knows you mean it. And then you do. And he says, well, why are you doing this again? Are you a hypocrite and insincere? Then, you feel depressed because you have sin in your life. Tell God you're sorry for disappointing Him and confess everything you have done. Or, things are never going to change. If God really loved you, things would be different. Then, Christian living is supposed to be a joy. But for you, it's always a job. Things come easier for other Christians than they come for you. Or, since God is in control of everything, why doesn't He help you? It's because you really don't belong to Him or you have sin in your life. Uh, Christians walk in victory, but you're a failure. Why don't you give up? What's the use in trying anymore? Or, if you promise God you will pray more faithfully and memorize more Scripture, you'll probably just break those promises too. So, just do God a favor and others a favor and die. You'll still go to heaven, but think of all the people you'll no longer confuse and disappoint by your lack of faith and inconsistent lifestyle. Just die. You're a failure. You have no victory. You never have. Your faith is a lie. You're worthless to yourself, others, and God. Do everybody a favor and end all of your pain and suffering. You are a bother and burden to others. Have you ever heard anything like that? Go through your mind. Many do. Now, Carl Payne comments on this, and here's what he says. It goes on and on. And no matter what you do, it is never enough. There is always something left undone, and some reason why you fail to measure up to God's expectations. A demon's first job is to keep you out of heaven. And if he fails in that mission, his plan B is to keep you so preoccupied and distracted that you never feel qualified or have the time to help someone else get there. Now, those are accusations. Here are seductions. Demons, let me warn you, will never seek to seduce you into immorality in this way. I'm going to read this as if a man is approaching a woman, but there is also a female counterpart to this with women doing this to men but I'm going to approach it the former way. If someone is seeking to seduce you into immorality, that person will never come up and say to you, hey baby, I've been looking at your body and letting my imagination run wild. You are a fine piece of meat and I want you to satisfy my lusts. I've made a bet with a friend that I could conquer you very soon and it's my intention to use you and get you to meet my needs and pay my bills. They'll never do that. What they'll do is that they will say what follows in an effort to achieve that. Here's what they say. I recently lost my friend to cancer. He was a good person, and God let him die. I'm so confused. My parents have abandoned me. I was never wanted. I did not do well in school because I had to take care of my brothers and sisters. When I went to church, I always felt funny because I felt like an outsider. I felt so alone. All I've ever wanted was a family. It made me feel like crying out, why me, God? I I need you to help me learn how to get to know God. I need help learning how to forgive, but you probably don't have time. I'm sure it will only be a matter of time before someone tells you not to associate with me. But I believe God sent you to me as an angel of mercy and that you're different. You have a lot of love and compassion. I believe you can help me become the real person God wants me to be. I mean, Jesus associated with sinners, right? He helped people in need even if he had to get dirty, right? You're you're kind and you're forgiving. I can tell that you love people and you don't judge anyone. I think you're beautiful inside and outside. Would you meet with me for Bible study and prayer so I can learn to be the person God wants me to be? No one understands me like you do. You know, the challenge is is that some of this could be very true for someone. You've got to be very discerning. But oftentimes what people like this do is that they are intentionally manipulating and deceiving the sensitive, serious Christian. And they're taking advantage of that Christian's protective and caring nature and desire to fix hurt. And and so this person has gone from compassionate person to compassionate person, and they have a history littered with broken relationships. A family that's sick and tired of their act, and they seek to manipulate the sensitive Christian into sex, a free lunch, a warm bed, and financial support. And when they're Act wears thin, the Christian draws the line, and here's what they say. I thought you were different. I thought Christians kept their word. I was wrong. You're just like the rest of them. I'll never go to church or read the Bible, and it's all your fault. I guess I can't trust Christians, and I can't trust God. There is a real warfare of seduction and accusation that takes place. And we've got to be aware and honest of the warfare. And the challenge is, we we can't back away from needy people. Oh, they're a marvelous opportunity to glorify God. So what do I do? Do I reject all needy people? Or do I embrace them all and take this risk? Here's what you do. Look with me in chapter 6. Look at verse number 10. Finally, my brethren. Be strong in the Lord. Brethren, is that singular or plural? Help me now. It's plural. Be strong. You can't see it in the Greek text, but that's plural. Uh, put on the whole armor of God in verse 11. Put on is plural. That you, plural, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we, now is that singular or Plural. Plural. Uh, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against demons. Verse 13, therefore, take up, in the Greek text, that's plural. Take up the whole armor of God that you all, plural, may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. Verse 14, stand is in the plural. Having girded your waist with truth, having girded is in the plural. And on and on and on. There is not a singular here till Paul talks of himself in verse 18. Together, the church body unifies themselves wearing honesty, transparency, and discernment. That is why whenever you seek to minister and take care of the needs of others, you never, and get into a dating relationship even, you do not need to make those kinds of decisions on your own. What you need to be is that you need to be intensely committed to a group Bible study and a group with whom you can be honest and share and include others in that decision-making process. Oftentimes, when Christians get rebellious and stubborn and narrow and they won't consult godly counsel, I can just about guarantee you every time, they're seeking to do their own will instead of God's. And immersing yourself into the life of a group that loves you and will tell you the truth, most likely personally, is one of the greatest Factors in overcoming spiritual warfare. So our Sunday school ministry, our Sunday night Bible studies, and our Wednesday night ministries in the Word are extremely important and a primary factor in this church with this church body in defeating the demonic assault upon truth. And so we immerse ourselves with God's people in the Word. We surrender to the Holy Spirit in His will. We accept the fact that we are in a warfare and we frequently examine ourselves to make sure that we know Him. In fact, when I hear a message like this, where the pastor or the evangelist encourages us to examine ourselves, I examine myself to make sure I truly trust Christ and Christ alone. Well, you're a preacher. Well, I wouldn't be the first preacher deceived. Freddie Gage used to talk about a revival meeting he preached in houston texas one time and one of the first converts was the pastor and deacons and deacons wives and the pastor's wife came to the lord that week as well i wouldn't be the first pastor to be deceived now the deacons came up to the evangelist at the end of the week and they said what do we do about our pastor he just got saved three nights ago they said well was he a good pastor before i said well yeah he said he'll be a better one now keep him But every time I hear a message like this, I examine myself to make sure I'm in the faith. And I had a dramatic conversion experience. I didn't go from dim light to daylight like many church kids do, which is perfectly acceptable. I went from darkness with no stars in the sky to complete radiant light to where I had to wear sunshades when I read my Bible. Not really, but you understand what I'm saying. So I had a dramatic conversion experience, and every time I hear a message like this, I examine myself to see if I'm in the faith. Is there anything that Jesus Christ has produced in my life that is not the result of good raising, a good education, a good temperament? That's no hope for me. Or influence of my culture? Is Jesus doing something in my life? Has He ever done anything in me? Am I more than just the product of my environment? examine yourself. Hey, I've got good news for you. If you'll get humble before God, it doesn't matter how long you've been religious or a church member. Don't let the devil accuse you of being a hypocrite. You just hadn't heard this before. Just get honest before God and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ today. If you're struggling with that issue, just come. Can I tell you, other people have. Even pastors and deacons and their families have come on this basis. And you need to know, All the shame and the reproach and the embarrassment that you're feeling right now, that doesn't come from God. That comes from hell. God is trying to intervene to get you past that. And Jesus Christ bled at the cross. The price has been paid. You don't have to do anything else. He rose from the dead. And He's willing to embrace you no matter how awful you feel about that. He'll take you and thank God He wants you. And I want to pray for you just, just now. Would you stand with me, please? And we're going to ask God to do a neat work in your life. Others of you, besides receiving Christ, need to become part of Beach haven. Or you need to follow Christ in baptism. We want you to come as well. And I want to pray with you and ask God to bless you real good as you, as you do His will. Father, thank you for the name of Jesus. We bless you that we can come to you and that we can indeed wear the belt of truth. We can be entirely transparent and honest with you. Lord, the fact that you know everything is a great comfort to me. And, but it does feel good just to tell you, Lord, I'm weak and I'm in a need always. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, how lost I would be. And friends here today need to get honest with you about their salvation, about their words, about their warfare, Lord, about maturity. And I want to pray that you'll give them the grace just to get honest with you and deal directly with you and leave this place changed some with Christ in their life, others with a renewed commitment and surrender to you. But everyone free from the oppression and the aggravation of demons and the kingdom of hell. Now, Again, as we always do, we're going to, I'm going to finish my prayer in just a moment. And when I do, we're going to sing. We're going to ask you to come. Our staff will be here. We'll be glad to talk with you, pray with you. Maybe you just need to come to the altar, get honest with God. That's fine. Maybe you need to bring someone else with you. This is your moment to do serious business with God, and you can because He doesn't isolate Himself. He's done all that's necessary to walk up closely next to you. Let me finish my prayer. We're going to invite you to come. Oh God, would you please do a neat work in hearts and lives today, and I pray for a day of liberty. There are people here who've suffered so badly. They haven't had a day of freedom in who knows how long.